0: If uh, if I have not met you, my name is Chris, and uh, I get to minister most of the time in the Worcester congregation, which is very exciting. Um, I'm excited to be here this morning as we continue in our series, uh, the book of Ruth, from ruin to redemption. And this morning we're going to be in uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, uh, your iPhone, or if you're one of those Android people, go ahead and open that up Ruth 2 14 through 23 at the end of uh, of chapter 1 and and toward the beginning of chapter 2 remember with me how we saw Ruth and and Naomi in a rather desperate situation right they had they had just returned to Bethlehem from the country of Moab to the east which which is Ruth's home country it would have been an exhausting 7 to 10 day journey on foot, and and given their status as widows now in Bethlehem, they would have had no food, no jobs, and no protection. And as we saw last week, we saw how Ruth wasted no time uh, to roll up her sleeves and get right to work. She and Naomi had barely made it through the door before she heads out to the fields, trusting that God would lead her to a generous landowner who would allow her to gather grain for food. Despite her dire situation, Ruth believed that God was at work, and so she got to work. And remember, by doing so, by literally stepping out of her door in faith, she just happened. You guys see in the air quotes? She just happened to come upon the field belonging to a man named Boaz. We recalling the story, we learned that Boaz, is uh, he's not only a relative of Naomi's, which is going to play a significant role here, but we also learned that Boaz is the man from the Dos Equis beer commercials. He is the most interesting man in the world. He's older, he's wise, we see that he's wealthy. His name literally means strength or strong man. Uh, he's loved by his family. We see that he's respected by his coworkers. He probably runs a shelter for lost puppies. And Boaz is the man that we want our daughters to marry, right? And, and all of that kind of aside, here's, here's the real reason. Most importantly, Boaz is a worthy man. He's a man after God's heart. And last week he showed us that when when God's people find themselves in seasons of abundance and success and plenty, that we don't stop relying on God. We don't stop depending on God and finding our deepest joy and satisfaction in him. And because Boaz's hope is in God, not grain, he was able and willing to exercise exceeding generosity and kindness toward Ruth. A generosity and kindness that continues into today's passage and beyond, beginning in, in verse 14. And so we come to now our passage this morning. Ruth is still working in Boaz's field. It's still the same day. She's gathering grain for her and Naomi's survival. And we're going to begin reading. We're going to read the whole passage, starting in verse 14. So let's do that. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, that is Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from pull, pull some pull excuse me, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's, Let's pray. God the Father, we ask that by God the Spirit, you would teach us this word that is from your word. In the name of God the Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, what we see in today's passage is the very demonstration of grace upon grace upon grace. And all week I've had this passage, John 1.16, just on repeat in my mind as I've been reading uh, the passage in Ruth chapter two. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Isn't that a beautiful passage? When we read it immediately after reading Ruth 2, you know, we can't kind of help but think that that verse might be applying and and pertaining to Boaz. After all, we see that he's a man of, of a certain fullness, is he not? He has property and workers and grain and wheat as far as the eye can see. And Ruth has certainly been blessed by him, receiving from him kindness after kindness, out of the overflow of Boaz's abundance. But for those of us who have just like one ounce of Bible knowledge, we know that 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 verse in John 1.16 is not in fact about Boaz, but Christ. The one who created everyone and everything, the one whom holds all things together and from whom all blessings flow. What we see in the book of Ruth and specifically here beginning in Ruth chapter 2, through the character of Boaz is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing. We see a picture, a symbol, right down to the very fact that Boaz also is a redeemer of sorts, someone who buys back what has been lost Someone who reclaims and restores and repairs, and we're going to get into that here in a bit. So the parallels that we see between Boaz and Christ, they also reveal parallels that, we, that can be seen between Ruth and Naomi and, and us here to this, this morning, the people of God. And what I hope to highlight this morning by God's grace is that everything that was temporally true for Boaz and Ruth, that is in the physical here and now, everything that was temporally true for them is eternally true for Christ and us, his people. See, it's a layered passage. It's true on two different fronts. These things really happened between Boaz and Ruth and these things really are happening between Christ and his people. So this morning we're just going to go kind of verse by verse all the way down through. Trusting the Holy Spirit to teach us and encourage us along the way. And the way that I've broken this down is really into kind of three sections or three points if you will. Uh, the first thing that we're, we're going to look at and kind of examine is the exceeding kindness of Boaz. We're going to look at the exceeding kindness, how it's just kindness upon kindness and, and grace upon grace as displayed to Ruth. And then number two, we're going to be looking at the imitating kindness of Ruth. Uh, in a way, how she reflects, how she echoes, how she mirrors the kindness that she's receiving from Boaz. And then number three, we're going to be looking at the redeeming kindness of both Boaz, but certainly Christ as well. And so let's look, at, uh, let's look at number one, the exceeding kindness of Boaz. We begin in verse 14 with, Bo, uh, with Boaz inviting Ruth to join he and his workers for some lunch. He's already opened his property to her. He's already allowed her to glean from the margins of his field just as the law of Moses prescribes. He's already offered her protection in the company of his female workers. He's already offered her a place to rest and to stay hydrated throughout the long day of work. And now as we see in 14, he's offering her uh, an all-you-can-eat lunch as well as a to-go box for her leftovers, right? Earlier in the day, as we, we saw last week, Boaz had investigated Ruth's story, he did a little digging. He took the time to, to research and, and ask about her, and he got the details of her situation. And when he did, he was, he was moved with compassion for her, a compassion that is now resulting in this just exceeding kindness and grace upon grace. So after lunch, Ruth is eager to get back to, uh, to work to take full advantage of the permission that, that Boaz has so generously extended to her. And when she leaves the table, get this, I mean, we've just read it. Boaz instructs his supervisors in verses 15 and 16 to now open up the whole field to her, the whole field for her to glean, not just the borders. And then he takes it one step further. He tells them to even open up the grain that's already been bundled, And to let Ruth glean from what would have been the choice stalks. Right? We're not talking the half-broken, half-smashed, trampled stalks lying all over the ground. He's, He's offering her, he's extending to her the good stuff, exceeding kindness and generosity. And one of the most striking things about this story is that Boaz doesn't owe Ruth any of this Boaz doesn't owe Ruth anything and yet he gives her everything she is is well aware of this right she's well aware that even though she was the one gathering right she was the one out reaping and gathering the grain and everything else was all a gift it was all grace It was all undeserved provision. She had walked out the door earlier that morning with absolutely nothing in her hand. And yet, throughout the course of the day, she's been given a place to work, water to drink, a place to sit and rest. She was given the company of female workers. As for protection, she was given a meal with wine and leftover She was given the tools to beat out the grain at the end of the day. And then ultimately, after one day of work, culturally, this would have been a record breaker. She had gathered in verse 17, we read, one whole ephah. It was 30 pounds of grain. This would have been enough to feed her and Naomi for two weeks or more in one day. And then just kind of quickly skip all the way down to the end in verses 21 and 23, she's even invited back. She's invited back to glean every day until the end of the harvest. Again, Boaz doesn't owe Ruth anything and yet he gives her everything which is one of the reasons why she responds to him like she does she prays a blessing over him and praises God in verse 13 from last week exceeding kindness grace upon grace hey brothers and sisters I wonder do we think that way do we view what we have in our own lives this way Do we recognize the graces of God that have been so richly provided for us even though we have deserved none of them? I mean, after all, if we we know the gospel story and, and, and the biblical, the big story in and of ourselves, in our flesh, we are willful, broken sinners Similar to the Israelites during the time of judges, we, each of us, have turned our own way, living our lives the way we see fit, which ultimately means we've worshiped ourselves as gods. And yet, how many of us, through all of our blindness and sin, still have jobs, still receive paychecks, still have food in our fridges and, and and gas in our tanks and even breath in our lungs do we take the time to acknowledge the exceeding kindness of God in our lives and how grace upon grace has been poured out upon us from his fullness every night when I gather my, my kids up and and tuck them in and um, I like to have that time at night where we just kind of get lost in prayer many times. They, in fact, they fall asleep. They, they get bored. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not good. I need to be a little bit more engaging, I think. But I, I try the best I can to come up with these just long, outrageous lists of random things that I'm thankful for. Trying to demonstrate to them kind of this principle that I'm, that I'm trying to work into into. The scene here. And it's just, God, thank you for the lampshades. Thank you for the outlet covers. Thank you for light switches and, and our forks and for our seat cushions and just all of these random things. Because what I hope ultimately happens in the hearts of my children is that they acknowledge, that they see that we, we deserve none of this. We deserve death. But instead, and I'm not even talking about salvation just yet. Instead, we have just received grace upon grace upon grace. And I hope that what happens in the hearts of my kids, oh, Holy Spirit, help this to happen, is that they would grow to recognize, like Ruth, that they would become grateful and contented and even generous worshipers of God. See, we see in, in, in the person of Ruth that she doesn't become entitled. She doesn't ask for, for any icing on the cake. She doesn't even assume that she can come back any other day but that one. She doesn't become discontented, asking for, for how I'm kind of all over this work. And man, Boaz, would you send some help to, to help me glean? She doesn't, even when she gets back to Naomi, she doesn't hoard it. She doesn't keep it all to herself. And, and now I'm, I'm jumping basically into my second point. She, Ruth sees Boaz's kindness for what it is. And then, in, and then number two, we see that she imitates it. It's one of the responses that, that just wells up in, in the heart of God's people. The imitating kindness of Ruth. See, after wrapping up what would have been a very long day's work in verse 17, Ruth slings this, imagine it, this 30 pound bag of grain over her shoulder in verse 18 and then she makes a beeline back to the city. Now the fields would have been outside the city so she had a walk ahead of her. But she makes a beeline back to Naomi who's probably been waiting all day and wondering all day how Ruth is faring. If we've read the text right, Naomi wouldn't have had anything to eat that day. She's waiting. Ruth steps inside the door with her, with her arms literally full where just that morning she had stepped out and her arms were empty. Do we see the role reversal of Naomi going out to Moab full and coming back empty, but Ruth going out empty and coming back full. Yahweh is blessing here. There's something in the works. She shows Naomi the bag of grain and hands Naomi an already cooked meal from her leftovers at lunch. The same Sacrificial kindness that Boaz has shown to Ruth is now coursing through Ruth to Naomi. Right there, in that moment, Ruth is a conduit of God's grace. Having stored up all that kindness that Boaz has extended, she's now able to pour it out on Naomi. And I wonder, do we ourselves Do we see ourselves as conduits of God's grace? Scott was talking about this during the the confession and, and, and the declaration of assurance. When people are around us, do they benefit from us? Do they see that we've gleaned? Do they see that we've spent time in the harvest of God's word and his presence and do they benefit from it? I spoke a little bit about words and deeds at the Thanksgiving Eve gathering. Church, do our words and deeds reflect that we have been poured into the kindness of God? Does it come out that way? The grace of God that we received, does it come back out? And if not, church, what does it say about God's people who become the dead end of his kindness? What's Naomi's response in verses 19 and 20 when she sees this outpouring? She not only prays a blessing over Boaz, but look, church, she praises God again. She praises God again. I wonder the people in our lives who are in Naomi's seasons of life, struggling, struggling, Barely able to put one foot in front of the other. And God has just given us abundance of grace and kindness. I wonder who around us might be in need of us extending that same thing. My wife and I have been there many times on the receiving and the giving end, where where we've just had nothing left to give. I remember one specific night in Columbus, we didn't actually have enough money in the account to pay for groceries, and we had to have groceries. We prayed on the couch. We said, God, you're a kind God. You're a faithful God. You're a providing God. I kid you not, as we prayed, we heard a clink in our mailbox. As we prayed for the exact amount on a Kroger gift card that we spent each week for groceries. Have you been on that receiving end? A conduit of God's grace comes and just overwhelms you into praising God for his faithfulness. I wonder what the world would look like if more Christians, you know, considered the kindness and grace of God as something not to be hidden, but as something to be showcased. That's all I'll say about that. Number three, let's look at the redeeming kindness of Boaz and of course the redeeming kindness ultimately of Christ. In the second half of verse 20, after Naomi prays a blessing over Boaz and all his kindness towards, uh, toward them, she reveals to Ruth that Boaz is not only a close relative, but he's also one of the family redeemers. And so we're gonna get a little bit culture geeky here for one second. A redeemer or a kinsman redeemer in some of your translations was a close relative who would essentially buy up all the land of a deceased family member in order to keep the land in the name of that deceased family member, okay? And thus, the legacy of the deceased family member would be maintained. This was a provision that was made by God in Leviticus 25 in the, in the law of Moses, and the purpose of this was to perpetuate the legacy of the deceased within their tribe In Israel, it was like a life insurance, if you will. Now, another provision that simultaneously is in view here is found in Deuteronomy 25, and this provision was called leveret marriage. And this custom was established in order to care for women whose husbands died before they had bore any children. Essentially, an unmarried brother of a deceased man would marry the deceased man's widow and have children. And the first son to be born would be given the name of the deceased man in order to perpetuate his name in the family line of Israel. So as you can tell, passing on the family name and inheritance within a tribe was like a huge, big deal in ancient Israel. But for Ruth and Naomi... The potential for such a redeemer also held the promise of long-term provision, protection, and a future hope for their family. To be redeemed would mean to be reclaimed. No longer would they be outsiders reaping in the margins, but insiders once again in the house of God Insiders with an inheritance. To be redeemed would mean to be restored. No longer empty, but filled. No longer broken, but healed. No longer widowed, but wed. To a bridegroom who sees all of the baggage of their past and yet still loves them and still wants them for himself. Now, On paper, this deal couldn't be more lopsided. Naomi would have been well beyond childbearing years. In fact, she would have been disqualified from leveret marriage. And Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. She was a half-breed, unclean pagan with absolutely no claim to leveret marriage and no reason at all that a redeemer should win her back. And I hope what you're seeing here is such was the case for you and I. The parallels between Ruth and ourselves could not be more obvious. The Bible teaches that each one of us separated ourselves from God Though we were created to be in relationship with him, each one of us has willingly turned our backs to him and worshiped ourselves as gods and all of the idols that come with our, you know, desires, money and pleasure and comfort. We've alienated ourselves from the presence of God by our sin and we deserve nothing more than to be removed from his presence forever, if you will, exported back to Moab. We have absolutely, like Ruth, no claim and no reason why a Redeemer should look upon us with mercy to win us back. And yet, church, that is exactly what Jesus of Nazareth did. Talk about an Advent message. The second member of the Trinity, God the Son, Took upon himself human likeness. He looked upon our helpless and hopeless position with compassion. Not because he saw anything of merit in me, I don't know about you, I have no merit here. He didn't see that or anything in us that would that would have made his efforts worthwhile. But because in his very DNA, He is loving and gracious and merciful and kind and compassionate. And in the mystery of his mercy, he determined before the very foundations of the earth as he stared down the corridors of time that he would save a multitude of those who had rebelled against him. After all, he's the author of the story. He gets to finish it however he likes And he does as he pleases in the heavens and the earth. But here's what separates the Christian faith apart from every other world religion. Instead of demanding that that whoever would want to be with him pull themselves up by the bootstraps and ascend to his level. Church, he came down to ours down into our pagan, idolatrous mess, Jesus came into Moab. He became a man, flesh and bones and all, and now as the firstborn of God's new movement, of new creation, he lived his life differently than any other human ever in history. He actually lived in perfect obedience to the father and though he was tempted to sin as as the book of Hebrews goes into in all the ways we are he was tempted to sin he never once sinned he was blameless he was righteous he was the epitome of worthy and yet for his plan of redemption to work you guys, we have to recognize the bad news that precedes the good news. Something had to be done about sin. It had to. Just like the role of kinsman redeemer, someone needed to buy back what was lost. Someone needed to pay for the murder and the greed and the sexual immorality that alienated us from God in the first place. After all, he is holy. He is righteous and he cannot just simply overlook unholiness and unrighteousness. And so as scripture tells us, it's, it's, it's like my favorite passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus took the sins of his people upon himself. He became our murder. He became our greed. He became our very sexual immorality. And then when he died the death of a criminal criminal on the cross, the death that we all deserved, our sins died with him. And then when he was buried, our sins were buried with him. But grace upon grace, when he rose to life, he made sure that our sins remained dead in the grave. And now he invites us to believe that his death was enough. It was enough to pay the full penalty of yours and my sin. And he now invites us to trust that his blood that was spilled was wholly sufficient. That there's nothing else needing to be done. Not one jot or tittle. Nothing, it is finished. And that we who were once alienated him from him in our sin, once Moabites, we've now been reconciled by his death and are now holy and blameless and above reproach before him as we continue trusting in his name. So even more so, than Boaz with Ruth. And we haven't even gotten to that part of the story. I'm really trying not to give it away. Even more so than Boaz with Ruth, Jesus did not owe us anything and yet he gave us everything. Giving everything to reclaim us and to change our collective status from exiles to bride. Back in 14, verse 14, the very beginning, when Boaz kindly invited Ruth to come and sit at his table, church, there was an even deeper kindness that was going on that does not at first meet the eye. Boaz wasn't just offering Ruth a hearty meal. He was offering her a change of status. And from that moment onward, from verse 14 onward, Ruth would no longer and will no longer be regarded as Ruth the Moabite by he and his workers. No longer regarded as Ruth the immigrant or Ruth the outsider, but in every real way, Ruth the Israelite, who now had equal standing with the rest of Boaz's family of workers. What I hope you hear from this is is, is this, that brother or sister, wherever you are here in this room, it doesn't matter who you are or what you have done or where you've come from. Jesus is very truly inviting you right now as you are with all the dirt under your fingernails and all the baggage of your past to come and eat at his table, to come and maybe for the first time ever no, certainly for the first time ever, be truly satisfied with some left over. To come and have your status changed. To come and receive a new identity in the family of God. Grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, in... in uh, in the wake of the Thanksgiving season and and day, and well, I hope we never leave that season actually, but in the wake of it, for those of us who have had that change of status and who have been welcomed with arms wide open into the fold and family of God, I pray that you would now stir up in our hearts gratitude beyond gratitude for the grace upon grace that has been lavished upon us. And for those in this room who have not yet been ushered from darkness into light. We ask that by the power of your regenerating spirit that you would apply the gospel to those hearts here and that they too, with arms wide open, would be welcomed into the fold and family of God, signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus' blood and his blood only, and it's in his name we pray, amen.